Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood, sports, and crypto. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, founder of Lola Media, back from a long stint abroad. Nice to be back, Paul. Welcome back, Mesh. I am actually traveling this week, but Mesh, it is good to have you back. I think our fans got the treat of Jessica last week co-hosting. She was great. She did a great job. Congrats to her. did a wonderful job. I'm in San Francisco recording as we speak. I came here for the uh, South Asian Bar Association Conference, South Asian Bar Association of North America. Phenomenal conference. Just great people in a great city. Amazing weather, food, culture. Super talented lawyers from all over the country and Canada doing amazing things. And these things really recharge your battery. And you learn so much about the areas that I work in that are just evolving so rapidly. And things like the Supreme Court, the metaverse, NFTs, negotiation, legal luminaries from the entire South Asian community and cool people. You know, that's what I like about these conferences. So I got a lot of information. Plus last night, Jay Sean performed. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) So that took me back. Everyone went crazy. Did they break out any uh, Bhangra remixes? Yes, they did. And he sang, you know, he sang Punjabi. He sang down. He sang, do you remember? He did all the hits and then he sang Punjabi too. Dude, I love that. Acapella. So he was like a trifecta. He DJed, he sang acapella, and then he did the hits. Amazing. That sounds amazing. Sounds like a good time. That's kind of the time I had. I was just in Lebanon. Yeah. And I would say like every woman in the audience lost their mind. Well, I'm glad you're having fun. I had a similar experience, just people having a blast. I was in Beirut uh, for a week. You know, given everything that's happened over there, they still like to party. They really know how to entertain and really great place. So I'm back, a little bit under the weather, but ready to get right into it, Paul. I'm glad. Glad you're back. I'll be back in NYC for next weekend. But yeah, let's get into it. So first story this week, big story, Disney Plus on the uh, acquisition front for content. That's no secret. They've committed, I think, like $33 billion to content spend. Bob Chapek recently got a three-year extension from the board. So that's a vote of confidence. I think he was in a, maybe in a little bit of a kind of like a 
not limbo, but like uncertainty as to his future. Succeeding someone like Bob Iger is not an easy task. No. So to get a three-year extension, it probably gives him a lot of confidence, at least in the short term, that he can work on the slate and deal with some of these challenges from COVID to inflation to political stuff that, you know, Disney, he's got to navigate a, a lot of delicate issues. So to have, you know, some confidence from the board is a good thing. And so one of the things that they are clearly focused on and they have been for several years is Disney plus they have what, how many 137 million subscribers. Now they have 137.7 million subscribers. That's a lot and growing and growing. They just announced a five title deal with BTS at least one is a taped concert. There's some behind-the-scenes documentaries. Right. I think even a reality TV show. And not all of the shows will have all of the members, which I think is in keeping with their decision, I think, to sort of work together, but also like have flexibility to pursue solo projects. Because, I mean, how do, it's hard to coordinate seven people doing everything all the time, right? Yeah, and from what I understand about BTS is that they do everything together from like a business standpoint. Like my sister is a member of ARMY, BTS ARMY, which is their diehard fans. She was one who sent me this article and they love that BTS does everything together. They do business together, but obviously each individual is their own person. I think this deal allows them to not only showcase themselves as a group, but then each individual has their own personality come out in the different types of shows but it's interesting i mean it just goes to show the growth of popularity around korean content specifically korean culture and disney plus wanting to play in that space well i mean i gotta say so bts they sell out every show they play the weights are insane people lose their minds tickets are super expensive but you know we've seen boy bands yeah i'd say they're more than a, a boy band obviously they're very talented like a super group super group but we've seen you know with one direction you know harry styles has sort of become like the uber star there are others that are having successful careers as well but harry styles is sort of like dominating with NSYNC, it was Justin Timberlake. So sometimes when you do take these breaks to focus on side projects or solo projects, stars emerge and then you can't form the group back together again. It'll be interesting to see, you know, do they return to what we know them as now or do some of them have more success than others? I think one of the core components here that makes them different is that they all have ownership in Hype, which is the management company that's gone public, I believe. Yes. Or whatever the, the umbrella company is public, they all have equity in it. And I think that's a little bit different in comparison to like other boy bands. Like they actually are like an owner in BTS equity. And therefore, I think every individual is like like minded in the sense like, look, if one of us wins, we all win kind of thing. And so they do these like major deals with everyone from like Nike. And my sister was telling me all this stuff like with a Nike or a Facebook or Instagram or Disney Plus, and they do it together as a company. And then each individual has their own thing. It's actually quite fascinating. I don't think anything's ever been done like this before. Well, I mean, sure. I don't want to be Yoko Ono here, but if someone <laughs> is contributing 50% of the value of the seven, right? Yeah, yeah. Like their projects are taking off and they're more well-known. Doesn't that change the dynamic? I mean, you wonder, was BTS one of the first sort of like decentralized, you know, super groups? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it remains to be seen. I think for now, Disney locked in some premier talent, as you said, continuing the trend for sort of Korean, Asian, Pacific content. I think Disney has said that they want to greenlight 50 titles. Wow. 
2023. And good for them. Finally, I kind of wish I was still there to uh, work on some of this stuff, but they didn't listen to me 10 years ago. <laughs> well, it seems that they're going after obviously what Netflix has been very successful at, which is the same region of building content. Netflix has so many shows and titles catering to that region, catering to that type of content. Disney Plus is coming after them. And it seems to work. You know, I, I think, you know, we can talk about after the break, uh, the Emmys and how Squid Game has actually like kind of changed the game. It's, it's the first non-English show to receive a series nomination. So we can talk about that when we talk about the Emmys, but like that is a pretty big feat. No, it is. It's kind of like what Parasite was for the Oscars, right. although not exactly the same. One thing I just thought about that's really interesting, and I, I don't know if this would be public or even if it's possible, but if you're doing this deal with BTS and you're Disney+, Plus, do you throw in a paragraph about you have to show up in the metaverse, right? Like, you know, oh, yeah. we want your avatars to like do concerts in the metaverse or hang out with fans in the because that'd be an interesting value add. And if Disney Plus becomes an alternative reality, that would be a really cool offering, I think. Anyway, just speculation. Yeah. And well, I wonder, I mean, hence why it's probably like, hey, let's test out this stuff first, see how they like working with Disney. If I'm if I'm BTS's, if I'm hype, I'm probably, you know, and, and Paul, you'd I mean, you'd be the lawyer here. You'd probably have some optionality for that, but also give yourself some space to be like, well, you know, between the Facebooks of the world and all these other independent metaverse companies, who are we going to go with? Like, maybe we shouldn't put those options too early because, like, God knows how much people are going to be willing to pay for us. Well, I mean, that's how the sausage gets made, right? Like, so if you're Disney and, and the terms of the deal haven't been announced, but let's say, you know, they pay them completely hypothetically a billion dollars, right, for these shows you're going to want to say in this billion dollar overall deal, I want some extra goodies, whether it's like a first opportunity or some exclusive negotiation window or a matching right saying, hey, I don't want you doing anything in sort of a metaverse with another content or a company competitor to ours without coming to me first. So normally when you're doing big deals like this, you're at least trying to protect yourself in the future so that you have a little bit of an advantage on price going forward, or at least a little bit of an opportunity to negotiate on preferred terms. I haven't done the deal, and I'm not saying that that's a feature of this deal. I'm just saying that's a standard thing that you would try to ask for. Right. Makes sense. Okay, let's take a quick break. Discuss the Emmys when we get back. Okay, Paul. Emmy nominations. It is that time of the year. And uh, this one was interesting. I mean, it is like a massive platform win. The platforms are, are doing extremely well. Like, And in this case, HBO, 140 nominations, Succession leading the pack. I mean, Succession was literally nominated for everything. Well, it's actually, it's um, 140, you're right, but it's they're now breaking it out. It's 108 for HBO and 32 for Max. Yes, split between the two. Netflix, 105 nominations, 14 going to Squid Game alone. As we mentioned, the first non-English show to receive a series nomination. 
Hulu, 58 nominations, Only Murders in the Building. Their second season's just out. I need to watch it. I'm a big Steve Martin fan. Selena Gomez got snubbed. I like her a lot. She didn't get nominated, but Martin Short and Steve Martin got nominated. Apple, 51 nominations led by Ted Lasso and Severance. Ted Lasso, I think pretty much everyone got nominated. Disney Plus, 34 nominations. Moon Knight was in that. And then, of course, Amazon Prime, 30 nominations led by... Of course, as always, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, man. I mean, look, it's uh, it's interesting because it's like, as you were saying. Hey, Better Call Saul, too. Better Call Saul, yeah. Better Call Saul got, obviously, uh, nominated. I think one of the surprises was for Best Actress as well. It's interesting, though, because I was reading this whole thing about, like, it's HBO and HBO Max. Hulu nominated, but some of them are FX shows, and FX wants, like, you know, to get the credit. And then Disney can make the argument that, you know, ABC and all these other ones are nominated. So it is funny because I was reading this article that was saying the Academy should not get involved in the platform wars disputes on like, you know, how they measure how many nominations they get, um, which I think I think is interesting. You know, it's like marketing to a degree. Right. Because if all you're focused on is the top line number, like we got 140, like HBO got 140 if you aggregate HBO and HBO Max and Netflix got 105, Netflix really, it sounds like a, a bigger delta than really Netflix would say, well, HBO only got 108, HBO Max right. got 32. One year Netflix got, and last year Netflix got 160. But I, I agree with you. And the other thing with you know Disney, it's like the top line number, but how do you report that? Did ABC, do they, do, right. do they count there separately? FX, Nat Geo, so apparently... Nat Geo's are counted in Disney Plus, but FX wants to be right. separately reported. And it's one of those things like if you're a studio head or a division head, then you probably, the amount of Emmys that you're nominated for and that you win has an impact in your deal, sort of your compensation, your notoriety, perhaps bonus. Certainly with talent, it's the same thing. And when you are making these for your consideration materials and other marketing materials, you want to say, oh, we led the industry with the amount of nominations or record-breaking amount of nominations. So I think this complexity gives platforms and content producers the ability to craft a narrative that supports them. It's, it's just a little bit flexible because you can say, well, we're the best streaming platform or we're the biggest platform overall or right. our brands had the most nominations. But ultimately, and I think the Academy's position on this is, we're just rewarding the shows, right? We're trying to not look at who made the show or where you can watch the show because that takes like a PhD to figure that out. We're just saying what shows are great, who's writing really good content, who's acting really well in these different genres, and let's reward that. And at the end of the day, however the dust settles, you guys can do the tabulation on your own. Well, speaking of rewarding, there were a few snubs here that people were just kind of eye-rolling. Stranger Things did get nominated. I don't know if you've seen season four. It's my favorite season. It's so well done. None of the cast members got nominated, and at least one or two of them should have. No nominations for the last season of This Is Us. Atlanta didn't receive any nominations for their show. This last season, which had been on hiatus for like, I think over three years post-pandemic, Donald Glover did get nominated, but the show itself didn't get nominated. Nothing for Yellowstone, which I think has made everyone just go pretty nuts because Yellowstone was a fan favorite for a while. It was an Emmy's favorite for a while. Everyone loves Yellowstone. It's kind of one of those things that unites America. Like Yellowstone could win, you know, a future presidency potentially, but 
no, no, no Emmy nominations for Yellowstone, and then no at nominations for Blackish in its last season either. So, you know, a few snubs here and there. Um, the one surprise that I was really happy to see. Himesh Patel for Station Eleven for a limited series. I love this show. Station Eleven was like my favorite show of the year. It didn't get any nominations, but um, he got nominated for it. I know you say snub. I just wonder, does the concept of a snub really, can you have a snub when there's so much good stuff out, right? When there's this much proliferation of content and things that a lot of people love, you can't select everything, but does that mean that there are really snubs? I like Lupin, uh, didn't get nominated, but, you know, Succession, amazing show. Amazing. Ted Lasso, great show. Amazing. Squid Game, amazing show. So they're picking great shows, but you can't pick them all. And I hear you on, you know, if, if America loves Yellowstone, but it's just, it's a hard thing to do, right? I think that's actually a very, very fair point. So I was really reading the articles that said, when a show that has so much influence is in its last season, maybe you like give them a nomination in their last season as, as a form of respect. That said, I was pretty happy with the nominations. Like as like every show that I liked was nominated except for Yellowstone. And just to be fair, the last season of Yellowstone wasn't the best season. So I don't really have that big of a problem. Obviously, I think Succession is the best show ever. Ever. Like, it is so well-written, the acting. I mean, ever. <laughs> I think Game of Thrones is the best show ever, but Succession is an amazing show. And I think Brian Cox, Jeremy Strong, the whole cast, really, but it is a phenomenal show. You know, I actually, I'm cheering, rooting for Abbott Elementary. I think Quinta Brunson is hilarious, and... If they can win, that would be great. I've never seen that show. You got to watch it. It's funny. I do have a weird thing with networks now. Like, I won't watch it because I feel like I'm going to get some PG version of something that I want to watch that's, like, unfiltered. So, like, I like watching an FX show on Hulu because I'm getting that, like, unfiltered version of it. But it's hard for me to watch, like, a network show. I think the last network show that I actually liked was Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think that was it. I'd say Brooklyn Nine-Nine was... I liked parts of it. I would have expected more from Andy Samberg. I mean, he's funny. Yeah. But there were moments yeah. where it was just like, you know, it kind of dragged for me. But I, I yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But Quinta Brunson is like a rising star. And she was on Black Lady Sketch Show season one. And she was hilarious there. Like everything she did was hilarious. So I think ABC saw that, gave her this show. And hopefully she wins. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I hope a bunch of new people or like shows that maybe weren't recognized previously get their wins. I always love seeing that stuff. But I think the key here is that there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's a lot of good content. Most of us cannot keep up with it. And I think this leads us to, you know, our next topic that we get to after the break, which is with the rise of inflation and everything that's happening with COVID and supply chain issues and production costs in Hollywood, can we keep up this sort of production of like great entertainment or at some point, does Hollywood or the, the networks or the platforms have to pull back and we don't get as much because it just costs too much? So let's take a break and um, let's get to it. Yeah, Mesh, to your point, the appetite for content, when there was a production sort of Production ground to a halt at the start of COVID 2020. There was no new content really being made. I mean, if you had content that was already in production, 
and you could finish post because that could all sort of be done remotely in editing bays. But people that were physically on set producers didn't work for a while, right? Probably a year, maybe a year and a half. And so when the guilds and studios sort of collectively agreed that they could implement COVID procedures and COVID compliance and there were vaccinations and you could do testing and all that, it was expensive, but it became a necessary cost because there was this huge demand for content and money was flowing and people were streaming and the economy was just humming. And so the content wars were in full effect. And I think it's like, steering a cruise ship, like it doesn't just turn on a dime, right? You have to sort of like think where you're going to go in like 10 minutes and start because there's a delay. And so things like inflation and also content, they're not like necessarily immediate and their impacts are wide ranging. Inflation, for example, it affects every industry. It affects people's paychecks. It affects what they can eat, where they can travel. Every aspect of their life is impacted by cost but some of those costs can be passed down within other layers of the economy, but it is a very pervasive thing. And when you're making content, let's say I am an independent producer or a showrunner or a creative executive, I'm putting a budget together for approval before I know necessarily, I mean, I have a rough sense of the script. I have a rough sense of what my talent's gonna be, but if it's a film, before you have your financing lock, you're estimating what it's gonna cost. Right. But part of that is contingent on what lead talent you can get. And then let's say you do get one or two stars and you do put a budget together. It might be eight months to 12 months to 15 months before you actually go into production. And in this case, in the inflation that we're seeing, costs can double in that time. And so you wanna submit a, a sort of a budget on the low end to get the thing produced, right? Because you always hope for the best and think everything's gonna work out perfectly. And then when you actually go to make the thing, there's, as you said, supply chain disruptions. Everyone wants the sound stages. Everybody needs the equipment, right. there's shortages, there's bidding wars, there's hoarding and prices for everything have gone up. And so, you know, gas is $6 a gallon in California and the food, you know, Uber Eats, if your crew has, is like working remotely or whatever, your catering costs are gone, every cost has gone up. So right, how do you right, make right. things work? based on a budget that was a year old. And I know people that are dealing with this right now. It's like, if everyone had crystal clear predictability, this is still a hard process. Bringing things in under budget when inflation is normal, like 2% is a hard thing to do. When it's at eight, 9%, it's impossible. And so what we're seeing is demand is still high. There's a lot of projects being greenlit because that's a decision that was made a year ago. That's coming from companies. Now, some CEOs are gonna say, we gotta cut costs, we gotta really rein in spend. But the first sort of impact of this is not gonna be fewer shows. It's gonna be, how do we work with the script? How do we eliminate certain scenes? How can we make things either like Avengers Endgame and Infinity War were shot back to back in Atlanta because that made it more, I mean, it was like the most expensive movie ever made, but doing it back to back made it a little bit cheaper. There were some cost savings there. So it's like, where can we get creative? Where can we cut costs? What scenes are not essential? Can we reuse things? So you have to be really creative to try to make things under the budget. And then the other thing that's very impactful now, it's always been, but more so than ever is tax incentives. Right right? And production tax credits and going to jurisdictions that sort of encourage this sort of content creation, like Atlanta, New Mexico, Vancouver, the UK, because they have tax credits. They're like, hey, whatever you spend, I mean, there's different, and I do a lot of this work and I certainly did a lot of it when I was at Marvel. 
there's different structures in place. Some are just qualified spend, some are 25% back, some are credits, some are rebates. There's all kinds of different levers that these tax authorities can use. But generally speaking, it's a it's a way to save a huge chunk of your budget or you get it back at the end if you spend the money in qualified location. I just recently read, according to The Hollywood Reporter, Hollywood spending in New Mexico hits $855 million. The state has a $110 million annual cap on its tax incentive program, which offers refundable credits of 25 to 35%, which is, in, I mean, it's in, like, you know, if you're, if you're, yeah, like, I guess the, the governor of New Mexico and you're trying to bring, like, that's big business for them. It's huge. It's huge. And so, you know, these things are inherently political. And that's why when there is a change in regime, change in governor, change in political climate, sometimes people can say, conservatives can say, hey, we don't want to give these Hollywood fat cats this much of a discount. The flip side of it is it brings business, it brings revenue that would otherwise go somewhere else. So it's a debatable issue, whether it's net good or bad. But I think for Atlanta, it's worked out really well. And for other places, it's worked out. But there is an opposing voice to it. And so sometimes governors, when they're on their way out, they may try to truncate it or, or whatever. So I guess what I'd say is it's a dynamic situation. It is very impactful. Um, and certainly if you can get a credit in a state where there's a cap, you want to sign your productions up immediately, right? Because you don't want the money to run out. Yeah. But there are states that don't have caps. And historically, California, Gavin Newsom has not really been a huge fan of these sorts of tax incentives. I guess they feel like the entertainment industry is based there and they shouldn't necessarily need to give these incentives to keep people there. But um, what it's led to is a little bit of an exodus and that may change. Yeah, I mean, look, that happens in any business where <laughs> if your HQ is there and there's a better place to build a plant or wherever, you're going to go because it's going to save you on your bottom line. I read in the same article that Netflix and NBC Universal both recently built production studios in New Mexico committing $2 billion and $500 million respectively to produce content in the state over the next 10 years. I didn't even know. Actually, I just learned now. I didn't know that Stranger Things and Better Call Saul they're both filmed in New Mexico. Yeah. New Mexico, I think Santa Fe, Albuquerque, it's a mini Hollywood now. I mean, they have a really mature production industry. They've had it for a while, probably 10, 15 years. You're Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. As far as I know, I mean, it's dry out there. It's dry. It's hot. I think, I mean, there are parts that are desert. It would probably get cold overnight, but you're not dealing with like a lot of the elements. I mean, potentially fire, but it's not like you're not going to have a lot of rainy days that delay your shoot, right? And so... Right, right. And obviously, yeah, they don't have the sound stages that you would find in LA, but Atlanta didn't either, right? And they're building because they know that long-term there's going to be demand as long as the tax incentive stays strong. But it's got a good location. But if the tax regime were to change and the incentive went away, you don't know that people would still be producing there. I think, look, this is a problem that's continuing to happen. I think more and more people are obviously recognizing that inflation is a real thing. Costs are going up. It's affecting everyone. I mean, we're seeing layoffs across the board, cutting of costs everywhere. Um, Hollywood is no different. We'll see how that affects our content creation. But that's our show for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. Paul, safe travels back. We'll see you next week. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. I can't wait to be back. And despite the inflation, we're not passing the cost on to you yet. So this episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Seiler, Gonzalez, 
with assistant producer Justin Sanchez. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.